All right, enough fellowship and warm greetings. Uh, let me greet all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. It's a pleasure to see all of you this morning, and it's a privilege to worship uh, our God. I invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, last verse of chapter 9, and then we'll look at uh, all of chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, and uh, we'll look at chapter 10, as I say, uh, which follows. Let's hear God's word together. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now jump forward from 938 to 1028. What you have before that is a list of the names of the leaders of the community who, by writing their names on the document, formally express their commitment to the covenant. We jump forward to verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, uh, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give, a yearly, to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and, our, and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns uh, where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that you are holy, holy, holy. You are unique in your majesty and splendor. You dwell in unapproachable light, and you are good through and through, good in absolutely everything you do and decree. Father, we thank you that through the shed blood of your son, Jesus, you have washed us of our pollution and corruption and have made us a holy people for yourself. 
Grant, O God, that we would increasingly conform to your holy character, uh, that every sphere of our lives would increasingly bow the knee to you. Father, we ask this morning as we gather around your word that you would use your life-changing truth to make us more like Jesus. Uh, We pray that you would use today's message, the truth of Holy Scripture, to sanctify us so that we we are increasingly holy as you are holy. Amen. As we've worked through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we've seen that uh, we are at a unique point in Israel's history. Uh, Israel, the people of God, had been exiled uh, by her enemies for 70 years, but then by the grace of God, by his intervention, they returned back to the land. And Ezra and Nehemiah describes how the people of God trickled back to the land and engaged in the work of rebuilding their home and rebuilding life in the motherland. And that work of rebuilding begins literally with the reconstruction of the temple. We saw that at the beginning of Ezra. Uh, The first half of the book is devoted to how God's people who have recently returned from exile rebuild the temple of God and the house of God. The second half of Ezra, though, describes how God's people themselves need to be rebuilt, how they need to be spiritually renewed. Ezra ends with this great corporate confession and a repudiation of intermingling uh, and intermarriage with the surrounding nations. And then we get to Nehemiah, one book incidentally, and you have basically the same structure. First half of Nehemiah looks at the way the wall of Jerusalem is rebuilt, right? The city is being rebuilt. But the second half, and especially chapters eight through 10, uh, including the passage we looked at, looks at the way the people of God are rebuilt spiritually. It's not just the uh, Jerusalem, the capital, that needs to be rebuilt. God's people need to be spiritually renewed as they return back to the land. Uh, We saw last week in chapter 9 how there is this corporate awareness of their guilt before God. And so the people of God confess their sins publicly and cry out for mercy. Uh, But wherever there is a sincere confession of sin and a desire for divine forgiveness, there is also a commitment to repenting and walking in holiness of life. So in chapter nine, we saw last week their confession of sin, but now in chapter 10, we see their commitment to God. They no longer want to walk in their sinful ways. They wanna live life according to God's law. Uh, They, in this specific passage, renew their covenant with God. This is a covenant renewal ceremony. And I want us to note three things. Sorry, four things. First, in this passage, the people of God commit themselves to God's word. Second, They commit themselves to being a distinct people, a holy people. Third, they commit themselves to keeping the Sabbath. And fourth, they commit themselves to supporting the temple financially. Uh, Before we get into the details of the passage, though, I think it's very important for us to understand what a covenant is. This is, after all, a covenant renewal ceremony. The idea of covenant is essential to Scripture, and it refers to a formally defined relationship between two parties. A covenant describes God's commitment to his people and their responsibilities to him. A covenant includes blessings for obedience and curses for covenant violation. A covenant is in some ways like a contract, although that analogy is somewhat unhelpful because in a contract you have two parties who negotiate the terms, right? The terms of their relationship. The thing about covenants is God doesn't negotiate with us. As our Lord and sovereign, he imposes the terms of his relationship to us. He tells us who he is and how we ought to live for him. But covenants structure his relationship to us, and the heart of covenant is relationship. 
heart of covenant is, the, is summed up in the covenant formula that we see sprinkled throughout Scripture. I will be your God, and you will be my people. God, through covenant, binds himself to us and says, I am your God. Call upon me, and you are my people. Uh, perhaps a, a helpful analogy, uh, a, a second analogy that might be helpful is uh, the marriage vows that we take. When a husband and wife join together in marriage, they engage in a covenant, right? The husband and wives make promises to one another. Uh, I'll never, I won't leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you for, in, you know, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. And these two lives become one through this exchange of promises. Covenant is made and it unites people. That's what God does. Pledges to be our God and we are his people. Now, about a thousand years before this situation in Nehemiah 10, God entered into a covenant with his people, the Mosaic Covenant. He saved them from captivity in Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and he pledged to be their God, and they became his people. And notice, remarkably, even after a thousand years and after great changes in Israel's life, that covenant continues to define her relationship to the Lord. It's not like at this point, having sinned, they come to God and God writes a new agreement. The same arrangement that was in place a thousand years ago is the same arrangement that they return to on this occasion of corporate confession. So, uh, the leaders of Israel, the representatives of the people, sign a document, we have the list of names here, formally expressing their commitment to live according to the covenant of God and the word of God. And the people join their leaders. We're told in verse 28, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the peoples, a reference apparently to outsiders who wanted to worship Israel's God, they all join together and commit themselves to keeping the covenant that God had entered into with them. We're told in verse 29 that they join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. What's going on here is that they are, they are entering back into that relationship that goes back thousands of years. The reference to curse uh, doesn't mean that they're going to be cursed because they're in the covenant. It means if they don't keep the covenant stipulations, they are going to experience the covenant curses. And oath is mentioned because this is a solemn pledge on the part of God's people to keep the law that he had given them. And the Mosaic law is the blueprint for life and covenant with God. It describes God's will, how he desires his people to relate to him. And so even a thousand years later, we see that the word of God to Israel has an abiding validity and relevance to his people. And even though they're in a new situation in their history, God's ancient word continues to structure their life and provide guidance and direction for them. Uh, keep in mind, Israel at this point in her history is no longer an independent nation with her own king. Those days are gone. She is now a vassal state of a much more powerful empire, the Persian Empire. There is no king in Israel. This is a new situation for her. And yet God's ancient law continues to be uh, the light that his people need to face the challenges of this new situation. Now, the significance of that for us is, is, is massive. Uh, certainly, we are not under the Mosaic law. As Christians, we have been bound by God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. 
That's the covenant that we are under, but we need to recognize that our covenant documents, the Old and New Testament scriptures, continue to define God's will for his people in every age. Certainly life in America in the 21st century uh, is very different than the life that our brothers and sisters had in Corinth 2,000 years ago, first century Christians. And yet, God's word to them is the same word that he gives to us today 2,000 years later. Uh, his blueprint for life continues to provide direction for people in the 21st century in a technologically sophisticated society. His words to us have an abiding validity and an abiding relevance. This is important to stress because there is a temptation often uh, for modern people to think that if it's an old book, an ancient book, it doesn't have any immediate relevance to me today. Can't answer the questions that I'm asking it doesn't address the existential challenges that I'm facing. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, has this great essay uh, called Modern Man and His Categories of Thought. And he says, one characteristic of modern man is that they don't believe that old books have truth that continues to be relevant for the present. And here's what he says. The mere fact that St. Paul wrote so long ago is to a modern man, evidence against his having uttered important truths. A modern person might say Paul uttered truths, but not important truths, not truths that can be uh, applied to the challenges of today, not truths that are enduringly relevant. We recognize that sometimes even Christians subtly buy into this idea. They acknowledge that the Bible is God's word to them. They acknowledge that in Scripture, God speaks to them, but they have maybe unspoken doubts, but real doubts nonetheless, that the Bible really answers the questions that they're asking and enables them to face the challenges of life. So often when you know, we're puzzled by the task of parenting, what's our first instinct? To run to the book of Proverbs and see what God's word says about parenting and to listen carefully and to apply its truth? Hopefully. But so often we run to the expert, right? We listen to the podcast by the expert, or we read the latest book, convinced that only the latest insights are gonna be able to help us in this particular situation. Uh, what we need to recover is a basic confidence in the, in the enduring validity and relevance of scripture. God's word to us today is able to provide light and direction for us to face the present challenges of life in every sphere. His word shows us how to live for his glory in every aspect of life. Psalm 119 says, uh, verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. How does the psalmist have insight to live for the glory of God? It's because the word of God illuminates him, shows him how to honor God in parenting, in marriage, in the workplace, in engagement with different people. And uh, that, that light continues to shine for us in the present. So we need to recover a confidence that this is the word of God, but also a confidence that it speaks to us today in the various challenges that we face. God's ancient word to us continues to be timely. Now, they commit broadly to keeping the Mosaic Covenant, uh, all of its stipulations. But here they specifically identify three areas where they commit themselves to obeying God. And presumably they identify these three areas because this is, these are areas where they have struggled. Uh, they commit themselves to no longer marrying pagans. Their sons and their daughters 
won't marry people who worship other gods. Number one, commitment to avoiding intermarriage with the pagans. Number two, there is a renewed commitment to keeping the Sabbath. And number three, there is a commitment to providing financially for the temple and the worship of the temple. And again, these commitments reflect probably areas where they had struggled, and so they explicitly identify these areas uh, as areas where they need to be uniquely faithful to God. So the first thing, they're going to avoid intermarrying with their pagan neighbors. Now, as I said before, the issue here is not racial purity. It's not that these people are ethnically below them and God's people shouldn't marry them. The issue is religious purity. Uh, by marrying those who worship other gods, God's people are slowly going to be tempted to become idolaters. God's people in every age are called to be a holy, distinct, and separate people who reflect the character of God to the world. And there's always a pressure on them to assimilate to the values and priorities of a fallen, a fallen and rebellious society. And one of the ways that that assimilation can happen is by intermarrying with those who don't sh share the same allegiance to God. And so they are committed for the sake of preserving their holiness to avoiding um, intermarriage with pagans, with those who don't, don't worship the Lord. Uh, we see this emphasis on distinction even in verse 28. There are some people who join the Israelites that are apparently outsiders, and this is how they're described. All who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Those who want to worship with God's people need to do what? To separate themselves from their idolatrous lifestyle and commit themselves to the Lord. And in this case, notice, they don't just separate from, they separate to. They separate themselves to the law of God. It's a really interesting connection between holiness and scripture. To be the distinct people that God has called us to be, we need to be committed to submitting to his word in absolutely every aspect of our lives. As we do that, as we seek to live out the word of God in our parenting, in our marriage, in the way that we work, in the way that we use our money, we will find that we increasingly reflect the character of God. So that's their first commitment, to be a distinct people by avoiding intermarriage. The, the, a second commitment in this passage, and really this is the crucial one, they commit themselves to supporting the temple financially. Uh, whereas the Israelites prior to exile had probably an unhealthy preoccupation with the temple, they believed God would protect them because they had the temple, the Israelites after exile have, almost, uh, have a sinful, almost indifference to temple worship. Uh, they have to be constantly reminded to keep the responsibilities to God and to provide for the worship that is offered in the temple. And so this whole section from verse 32 to 39 describes the commitment that God's people make to support financially the house of God. Notice the reference to the house of God in verse 32, at the beginning of the section. Notice reference to the house of God at the very end, verse 39. We will not neglect the house of God. And notice how sprinkled throughout are these references to the house of God. We're going to financially support it. Verses 32 through 34 describe their commitment to providing the raw material for worship. So they commit themselves once a year, there's going to be this tax, a third of a shekel, and that's going to pay for all of the material of worship, all the animals, all the grain, things like that. It's also going to be uh, used to maintain the temple, to repair it when there's damage. 
Okay? So that first part has to do with financial provisions for the sacrifices of the temple. The second part, verses uh, 35 to 39, describes the financial provision for the priests and Levites, the temple personnel. Since they devoted themselves to serving God in the temple, they needed to be supported financially. And the people had a moral responsibility to tithe from their crops uh, so that the ministers of God, the Levites and the priests in this case, could fulfill their responsibilities before God. They pledge that they will do that, do that consistently and put food and oil and wine in the chamber so that the Levites and the priests have what they need. Now, what's the abiding principle for us today? Obviously, we don't have an earthly temple, a place that we go to to offer sacrifices. Um, Christians don't have a temple because they are the temple. According to the New Testament, uh, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God's presence is in our midst, and so we no longer have an earthly temple. Uh, we nevertheless still offer sacrifices. Hebrews 13, 15 says this, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So we're still, as God's temple, offering sacrifices, but they're not bloody sacrifices. They're not animals. It's our worship. It's our adoration that uh, constitutes a sacrifice to the Lord. So how, how does the principle apply then when the temple is a spiritual reality in the new covenant age, the age we're in? Well, it, even though we don't have an earthly temple, we still need to recognize that we have a responsibility to support the ministry of the local church financially. And you see that frequently in scripture, uh, and specifically the New Testament. Here's one place, 1 Corinthians th uh, chapter 9, verses 13 through 14. It's always good when the preaching engenders a response from the people. It's <laughs> deeply encouraging. This is no passive uh, observation. This is a wholehearted response, which is what God is looking for. Uh, for <laughs> Uh, so, uh, there is a, a strand of teaching in the New Testament that one of the essential ways we worship God as this co new covenant people is by contributing to the worship of the church, supporting the ministry of the local congregation. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 13 through 14, uh, here's what Paul writes. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, notice the connection between priests in the Old Testament and our situation today. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So we honor God by giving generously of our finances to support the ministry of the local church. We honor God when we give of our finances to support the proclamation of the word and the worship of God's people in the local church. That principle continues to apply to us today. And in fact, the New Testament encourages us not simply to be generous with our local congregation, but to be generous in giving to all kingdom initiatives, anything that causes the gospel to advance in the world, anything that causes Jesus to be high and lifted up in the eyes of others should cause us to be generous with our money. How generous is the inevitable question. How generous has God called us to be? Well, at a minimum, as a starting point, I believe the Bible calls us to give 10% of our income to God. And my argument for that goes like this. Uh, have we received more of God's grace and love this side of the cross than the Israelites? Have we seen more of God's greatness and mercy and love this side of Jesus than the Jews saw? And the answer is certainly yes. 
So if God's ancient people gave 10% as an act of worship to their God, how much more should we give at least that much? Having seen God's goodness and love displayed in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So the tithe, I believe, is a floor, not a ceiling of giving. It's a place to start. And then, of course, Jesus says, continue to be generous uh, as, you, as you abound financially. Uh, one of the questions we regularly want to ask is, can I be doing more for God's kingdom financially? Can I be supporting more causes that cause his name to be known in the world? We shouldn't just go, oh, I give 10%, I'm good. Now I can use the rest on me. We should be actively seeking to use the financial and material blessings that we enjoy from God to cause his work to advance in the world. At the end of the day, though, it's not, it's not primarily a question of how much do you have to give. It's a question of what you love. What you love will inevitably shape what you give to. If you love Jesus, and you desire his reign to advance in the world, and you want people to know Jesus and experience his forgiveness and grace, if you want the gospel to advance, then you're gonna give generously. If your heart is gripped by the cause of Christ in the world, that will shape how you use your money. So ultimately, it's about loving Jesus and being committed to the work that he's doing right now in the world that makes us generous. Now, obviously, we can learn to be more committed to Jesus and his work by asking the Holy Spirit to change what we love, which is legitimate. But it's also true that uh, what we spend our money on reveals what we love, but at the same time, note this, our spending shapes what we love. It's reciprocal. In other words, the things that we, that we give money to are things that our heart is drawn toward. You see Jesus teaching this principle in Matthew 6, verse 21. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The implication seems to be that wherever you invest your money, whatever you put your treasure into, that is the direction your heart is going to go into. So if you wanna have a heart for Jesus and his kingdom and his work, one basic way to start doing that and to cultivate that is by starting to give more generously to his cause because the affections often catch up to our giving. So they recommit themselves to providing generously, consistently, for the temple worship. Finally, they recommit themselves to keeping the Sabbath day holy. Uh, verse 31, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, what's interesting about their situation is that even though the principle has remained the same for a thousand years, keep the Sabbath day, seventh day of the week, uh, that's a day that should be set apart as holy to God, the principle remains the same, their, their situation on the ground is different. They now have to deal with the fact that their pagan neighbors occasionally show up with their wares on the Sabbath and say, hey, you wanna engage in some business deals? Uh, you, you wanna make some profit? And, and that's a temptation that they're facing here at this point in the history that they didn't face when they were you know, in, their, in their own land. They didn't have these nations coming to them wanting to engage in business. So they have to apply God's ancient law to a new situation, just as we often have to do. And they commit themselves, we're not gonna do, we're not gonna do any business on the Sabbath. Uh, we are gonna keep that day holy to the Lord. God gave his people the Sabbath as a day of rest. Six days, they toiled, they worked, but one day a week, they had relief from their toil. 
One day a week, they turned their, their thoughts and their hearts to God, and they worshiped him. Incidentally, I find that connection between the worship of God and rest interesting. Uh, we often think of, we're going to worship, and then we're going to rest. Have you ever, in, in your mind, recognized that there might be an identity between the two? That in worshiping God, we, our souls find the relief that we crave? It's an interesting um, thing that the Sabbath brings together for us. In any case, they commit to keeping the Sabbath, uh, to keeping this day of rest and worship for God. Even though they violated it often in the past, they're committed to it. Now, the question emerges, do we need to keep the Sabbath? Is it God's will for his people today to continue to observe the Sabbath? And I would argue no. That part of the Mosaic law is no longer binding on believers today. I think the Apostle Paul is very clear about that. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, Paul writes, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Notice, first of all, that the Sabbath is put on the same level as various dietary regulations and various festivals. And so if we recognize that those have been fulfilled in Christ and sort of done away with, we should recognize also that the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ and done away with. In addition, the Sabbath, as well as these other festivals, are referred to as a shadow, and the substance is in Christ. The idea here is that all of these festivals, dietary regulations, and yes, even the Sabbath, function in redemptive history to anticipate the work of Christ. And now that he has come and brought to fulfillment all of these institutions, they are no longer binding on God's people. Paul says something uh, very similar in Romans 14, verse 5. Uh, we won't go into all the details of the context here, but basically you have two groups of Christians. One group thinks that certain days are special and others aren't. Certain days are holy. Uh, another group believes all days are the same. In a sense, all days are holy to God, but there isn't one day above another. And intriguingly, Paul sympathizes with that second group. He recognizes that they are right. Uh, Romans 14, 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, Paul wouldn't have said that if the Sabbath was binding, right? He wouldn't have said, whatever your conscience tells you to do, do. If he understood the Sabbath to still be in force, he would say, no, obey the Sabbath. But it's precisely because the Sabbath is no longer binding on Christians that he can say, some of you think you should observe the day, some of you don't. Do what your conscience tells you to do, essentially. So we recognize that this specific part of the Mosaic uh, law is not binding on us today. Still, we gather together as God's people on Sunday to worship him because the New Testament calls us to gather and worship God. Uh, we see this, for example, in Hebrews 10.25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Get together, encourage one another, worship God. And it's been the practice of the church from the very beginning to do so on the Sunday. We see scattered references to this in the New Testament. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we, when we were gathered together to break bread. So this was a Sunday, and apparently these early Christians are gathering together on Sunday to observe something like communion. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. So when you gather together on Sunday, as a part of your worship, put aside some money for the poor uh, to, to meet the needs of those around you. Again, we see this gathering on Sunday. Or Revelation 1.10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
apparently indicating Sunday, that this, this was the day when Christians gathered to worship. And apparently they did this because the first day of the week, Sunday, was the day of the resurrection. In the gospel accounts, you have this strong emphasis on the fact that he was raised on the first day, on the first day. And Christians have been gathering from the very beginning on Sunday to honor the resurrection. So we gather uh, we, to praise God on the day when the Son of God was raised from the dead. That has been the church's practice historically, that's what we see in the New Testament, and that's what we continue to do today. Now the question arises too, how do we honor the Sabbath now? If it's, we don't honor it by strictly speaking keeping it, how do we honor the Sabbath? I would say we honor the Sabbath by trusting in Jesus Christ for our rest. We honor the Sabbath by trusting in Jesus Christ for our rest. Scripture describes a life of rebellion against God as a life of fruitless toil, a life ground down by work, a life of exhaustion. To rebel against God is to experience physical and spiritual toil, fruitless labor. We see this in Genesis chapter three. After the first man, Adam, rebels against the creator, God imposes a curse on Adam. And here's part of that curse, Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Notice, work is now going to grind you down. You're going to provide food for yourself only with great sweat and exhausting toil. A consequence of man's rebellion against God is this uh, exhaustion, this diminished condition of weariness. This is what life is like apart from God. Whereas to be in his presence is to be replenished and renewed. He is the fountain of joy. To be separated from God is to be ground down, worn out. In the very next chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, Cain murders his brother and God curses him. And he says that he is destined to be a restless wanderer on the earth. Again, it's the same idea of constantly being on the move and never experiencing the relief that comes from resting. The curse is that he's separated from God and always on the move. And then we get to chapter five in Genesis. We get to the father of Noah, Lamech. And here's what Lamech says at the birth of his son. Genesis 5:28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Notice what Lamech's hope is. Finally, someone has been born who is going to give us relief from the curse, who's gonna give us reprieve from the fruitless toil that we've been enduring, that's been sapping our energy. Uh, and Lamech's desire to find someone who will lift the curse is fulfilled not finally in Noah, but according to scripture, in Jesus Christ. The rest that mankind pines for, the rest that comes from being reunited with God, can be found only in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 29, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The infinite relief of having peace with God comes through Jesus Christ. That's the rest that he provides 
for us. And he provides that rest by enduring the curse in our place. At the cross, he toiled and labored in our place, bearing the curse that we deserve. He took the judgment of God for our sins upon himself. And when he had absorbed the curse of God in all of its fullness, he rose again to new life in the resurrection, which means that it was paid in full. Through the anguish and the toil of Christ on the cross, we can experience once again the reversal of the curse and rest, that is peace with God, the relief of knowing that we are his and he is ours. To be in the presence of God is to know fullness of joy, is to be rejuvenated, is to experience life. And that's what the rest that Jesus provides for us. In fact, this rest even has a future aspect. There is an eschatological rest, a final future rest for God's people. In this life, we experience toil and hardship. Uh, one of the metaphors the New Testament often uses about the Christian life is warfare. We fight, we struggle, we labor, we toil. But a day is coming when we will rest from our labors. A day is coming when we will put down the weapons and we will experience eternal peace in the presence of God. We will experience a resurrection where we rise up from the dead. Creation itself will be renewed and we will have the rest and relief that we've longed for all of our lives. Revelation 14, 13 describes it this way. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. The day is coming when we will breathe a sigh of relief, when we will have eternal peace in the presence of God. And recognizing that, believing that, having faith in that future reality empowers us to strive on and continue doing the will of God in the present. Rest in Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have done what we could not do. We thank you that you have lifted the curse that our first father, Adam, brought upon us, and you have brought us peace with God. We ask, Lord Jesus Christ, that we would, even in this life, taste something of that future rest, enjoy the joy and the peace of fellowship with you and the Father. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that these truths would not simply stimulate us intellectually, uh, but be food for our soul and lead us to lives of unyielding obedience to you. Amen.